Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 179, my guest is Ergo. Ergo first appeared on the show on episode 130, so some of you may enjoy that one. And also some other relevant episodes are 149 with Waxwing, 150 with Samurai Wallet, 165 with Raphael Jacobi, and 167 with Chris Belcher. In this one, we get a little more technical and into the detail on how Ergo was able to unwind certain coin joints. But first, a word for the sponsors of the show. So firstly, my lead sponsor, Swan Bitcoin. Now disclosure, I do hold a small equity stake in Swan Bitcoin, but if you are in the US, you absolutely should get your auto stacking on with Swan. The process is so simple, even a no-coiner could do it. You auto fund the USD from your bank account, you auto stack the Bitcoin, and then you automatically withdraw it to your cold storage. So Swan doesn't charge withdrawal fees, they want you to hold your own keys. Swan also crushes Coinbase's fees for recurring buys by up to 80% and beat Cash App fees by up to 57%. Set and forget, just Swan and chill. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera to start auto stacking with Swan today. Be sure to use my ref link, swanbitcoin.com slash Levera, and you get $10 worth of BTC dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. Next up is Unchained Capital, Bitcoin financial services with products and services built on the foundation of multi-sig. So if you're looking for a way to set up multi-sig and you don't want to get too technical into it, Unchained have an easy web vault setup. You can use two trezors or one trezor and one ledger and you can set up a two of three setup where Unchained will be the third key in that scenario. So this is a great way to secure your Bitcoin for the longer term and also if you need liquidity, if you want to learn but you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, you can put up some Bitcoin as collateral. And that Bitcoin is then stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses and it's never rehypothecated. Also, Unchained have all these open source tools and content on their blog. So you can find that at unchained-capital.com. They've got Hermit and they've got Caravan. And check out my recent episode with Parker Lewis and Buck Purley talking about Caravan and how you can use it and what scenarios it might be handy for you. So go and check out Unchained Capital. The website is unchained-capital.com. For those of you in the UK or if you have pre-coiner or new-coiner friends in the UK, check out CoinFloor. They went Bitcoin only last year and they just recently launched AutoBuy, a service letting anyone stack sats hands-free. It's quick and setup is really easy. So CoinFloor have also launched one of the most competitive affiliate schemes in the Bitcoin space. It's a 39-month scheme that can let you generate a Bitcoin income by referring new or existing CoinFloor customers to AutoBuy. The only criteria is that they've not been previously referred. The website for that is coinfloor.co.uk. Lastly, Bitcoin Lessons. Bitcoin education still has some way to go, and if you want an easy mobile application that you can give to your pre-coiner or new-coiner friends, they've got it on Apple and Android, and it walks the newcomer through Bitcoin in a journey. It's like Duolingo. They basically get to learn about Bitcoin in bite-sized pieces, and they complete little quizzes and lessons and learn about Bitcoin uh, in that way, and they link out to different podcasts and articles and so on, and they're also Bitcoin only. This app is by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. There is zero interest in altcoins and it's Bitcoin, not crypto. So that's the mission. So go and check them out. It's bitcoinlessons.org and you can get it on the Google and Apple app stores also. Here's the interview. Hi, Ergo. Welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me back. It's uh, great to chat with you and I know you've been doing a lot of awesome work, so I'm really excited to get into it and discuss with you. So uh, I know you've got two reports that you have put out recently with OXT Research. Uh, so let's start with the uh, China and North Korea one. So it's called the North Korean Connection. Uh, what, what spurred this analysis? So uh, I guess in early March, 
the uh, the IRS, the DOJ, and the FBI um, uh, took some legal action against two Chinese nationals. And as a part of the legal actions, they they published some relatively detailed uh, chain analysis. Um, we saw this go by uh, in a couple of news articles. We got our hands on the you know official court documents, and uh, kind of took it from there. It, it mentions the Lazarus Group. So who are they? Uh, the Lazarus Group is, uh, I guess, a somewhat infamous uh, North Korean hacker group. Um, they they're allegedly behind a lot of uh, malware incidents, hacks, thefts, uh, and other kinds of issues. Um, we've seen you know multiple hacks of South Korean exchanges uh, in I don't want to say recent years, maybe not since 2018 or so. No, that's not true. 2019, um, we had one as well. But we've seen multiple, uh, you know, ex exchange hacks, um, you know, in South Korea. And they're usually, uh, we'll see a, a news report go by that attributes, you know, possibly to Lazarus Group. Uh, we don't usually get much details. Um, it's usually behind probably, you know, the, the government security services. Um, but in this case, uh, we finally started to get a little bit more details on that. Um, so, you know, and the, the Lazarus Group report, um, you know, like I said, we, we saw the, uh, the news reports go by and we got our hands on the actual, you know, uh, complaint filing. Um, you know, on first reading, um, there was a couple things that we noticed that were, you know, either omitted um, or, you know, kind of stood out to us as something that we probably wanted to check on. Um, so, you know, the first thing that stood out to us was uh, the use of uh, the term peeling chain. Um, you might see us use that from time to time um, in reference to just sort of a typical uh, Bitcoin transaction graph. Um, and for kind of the listeners that, you know, aren't familiar with, with that terminology, um, you know, a peeling chain uh, typically has, uh, uh, is a, a string of multiple transactions, typically with one input and two outputs. And depending on the size of the outputs, you can sort of get an idea of, of which output was the change based on some common heuristics and which output was the payment. Um, so this report, which was allegedly filed by, or which was filed by the DOJ, uh, the IRS and the FBI, uh, this was the first time that we've seen them use a somewhat technical kind of Bitcoin, Bitcoin transaction graph term. And that kind of immediately stood out to me. Um, I know that the IRS cybercrime uh, investigation unit was involved in this. Um, a lot of these uh, organizations, they have access to the mainstream chain analysis uh, software. But, uh, you know, that, that terminology sort of really stood out to us. It, it either means, A, they're more advanced than we, you know, kind of assume, or uh, they're getting help from the chain analysis firms. And I'm fairly certain it's a combination of both. Um, they're, they're very likely, even if the chain analysis firms aren't doing the actual analysis, it's very likely that they're at least aiding, um, aiding the government agencies, you know, be a consulting or some other type of, uh, uh, you know, assistance. Right. And as I understand, even companies like chain analysis and, you know, these chain surveillance companies or surveillance companies, uh, are, some of them have government contracts and it may well be that they had a contract to teach government employees about chain surveillance right and how to you know what is appeal chain what is you know a coin join and all these uh terms so so with um bringing it back to this particular complaint 
in the document or in, in your report as well, you mentioned about how there were these uh, what they call virtual currency accounts. So can you tell us a little bit about that and where, where did those uh, accounts come from? So the, the complaint formally, it, it names two Chinese nationals, um, but it, it claims forfeiture of assets belonging to virtual currency accounts. Um, that includes, you know, anywhere from, you know, Bitcoin addresses or ETH addresses um, to accounts directly held, you know, by the, uh, you know, associated entities at uh, major exchanges. Um, so the, the complaint uh, seeks forfeiture of those direct accounts. Um, the, the complaint also, uh, it, it, it references the virtual currency exchanges as uh, pseudonyms. Uh, it doesn't directly name uh, who was hacked and uh, any of the other exchanges that were involved. Instead, it it just uh, uses numbers. Uh, like I think it uses VCE1, Virtual Currency Exchange 1, or you know the Exchange 1 to reference you know who was hacked and, and sort of where funds went. So um, you know after our first you know perusal of the paper, we we wanted to figure out you know who was hacked. You know what does the complaint attribute you know, to who, uh, and then where did the funds go um, to try to, you know, get behind some of these pseudonyms. Um, so as far as hacked exchanges, um, I think we were looking at uh, Upbit. Um, let me actually pull up the report. We've got Ubit, CoinRail, and uh, BitThumb. There we go, exactly. Um, and some of those are, are you know, major uh, Korean exchanges, Upbit, uh, you know, and BitThumb. Uh, CoinRail was one that I had actually never heard of at the time. Um, and seemed to be sort of more of an altcoin, uh, smaller hack. But, you know, the complaint goes into various details about, you know, the process of how the hack happened at each exchange. And um, for the most part, uh, what it alleges is um, uh, social engineering attacks. You know, emails were sent to exchange, uh, you know, parties, uh, malicious links were opened, and the hackers apparently gained access to the exchange's private keys and were able to extract funds. Right, and so I guess if I had to just summarize what's going on here, it's essentially that this hacker group called the Lazarus Group, it seems, the story seems to be that they have found ways to hack some of these exchanges over the period of 2018 to 2019, and then they typically lie in wait for some time, right? It's like they're a hacker, they've stolen some bitcoins, and then they wait, and then they're looking for a way to launder that money or sort of send it through an exchange or and then try to pull it out as fiat. Would you say that's kind of a high level, that's what's going on here? Yeah, that's that's a, a good overview. Um, and what we saw uh, generally in the complaint was this basically happened in three phases, which you, you sort of just described. Uh, you know, number one is the initial hack, followed by uh, what looked like peel chains to various uh, intermediary exchanges. Um, you know, the, the peel chains, you know, they, they obfuscate slightly the transfer of funds um, and, and what they do at least you know in our opinion and, and basically the opinion of, of whoever you know authored the complaint um, is that these are ways of circumventing uh, you know the chain uh, the exchange compliance software uh, rather than depositing you know all 1,000 stolen Bitcoin in one transaction it's done over I don't know uh, you know a few dozen and smaller amounts um, this will sort of avoid some of the uh, the flags that might get raised from, uh, you know, exchanges. Um, so they'll, you know, do the hack, peel to a, a first uh, round of, ex of exchanges, 
um, in our opinion, they, they treat the, the second round of exchanges sort of as custodial tumblers. Um, they use, you know, the, the exchanges operate a shared wallet. Funds will go in, you know, uh, uh, one address or one wallet and might leave from another. And it's, it's very hard to keep track of, of uh, uh, you know, funds from that point on uh, since the exchanges are operating shared wallets. Uh, so after the, the funds are withdrawn, um, then they're appealed to a third round of exchanges uh, where it looked like uh, the, the conspirators were trying to cash out, you know, either fiat uh, or gift cards. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's a very mysterious story, right? Uh, so, so let's, I guess, dive into a little bit further detail on what's going on here. So uh, perhaps first, maybe you could just explain the difference for the listeners. What is the difference between a custodial tumbler and then, you know, what we know as the non-custodial coin join? If you could explain that, please. Yeah, so we, we've blurred the lines between the difference between a, a custodial tumbler and a non-custodial coin join. Uh, the term mixer has become, you know, used generically for both, uh, both terms, but they are, you know, inherently different. Um, and like you had said, uh, tumblers were some of the, the first obfuscation techniques that were available to Bitcoiners. And these were custodial. They took control of uh, users' private keys. Uh, they effectively operated a, a, a shared wallet and they disperse funds at, you know, some irregular, you know, interval after the initial deposit. Um, so again, you know, tumblers are custodial, they take control of the user's private keys, and they can get a little bit creative with how they, they disperse the funds. Uh, whereas a non-custodial coin join, which is, you know, sort of the Samurai Whirlpool, Join Market, and Wasabi Wallet, you know, the things that most Bitcoiners are now sort of have become used to over the last, I don't know, year or so, uh, those are non-custodial. Um, and, you know, they have to operate, you know, slightly differently. Um, because they're non-custodial, typically the uh, the funds in a coin join transaction are returned to the user in the same in, in the same transaction as uh, a user makes uh, an input. Um, so you know a, a coin join relies on math, whereas a tumbler can can rely on its uh, its custodial properties to obfuscate fund transfer. Yep. And then in terms of ways that someone like yourself, a, a white hat chain analyst, can attack or you know try to unmix or unwind uh, a tumbler is it essentially relying on things like timing analysis to see that oh okay 1000 bitcoins went in and 1000 bitcoins came out or what what are some of the ways that you would try to assess this yeah so depending on the tumbler each one sort of operates a little bit differently um you know funds aren't necessarily returned to the user in the same transaction like they are in a coin join and that's what we mean by, you know, a, a custodial tumbler can offer some better privacy than, uh, you know, a traditional coin join if kind of done properly. Um, you know, in a coin join, we know that the funds are returned in the same transaction. Uh, so we can just monitor, you know, the outflows from that transaction uh, to try to, you know, correlate with the user. Whereas uh, a custodial tumbler, you know, we're looking at potentially any number of transactions in the future that could possibly be, uh, you know, attributable to the original deposit. Um, and I guess just one other point I wanted to touch on just with the peel chains as well, because I think that's, it's, it's useful to, uh, go over that as well. So I think this is one of those dynamics where for some time before chain, you know, analysis became a thing, people thought they were able to obfuscate just by doing these sort of 
less sophisticated obfuscation techniques, right? And using, uh, I think you've used the term previously, is like self-shuffling uh, or uh, and just kind of this idea of splitting off and carving out little chunks of your Bitcoin and then uh, like those little babushka dolls, every little piece becomes smaller. So it's sort of like, that's, that's kind of like what the peel chain is. Uh, and essentially these, uh, you know, the Lazarus group guys and potentially other people are using peel chains thinking they're being more anonymous or more private. Uh, but I guess the reality is to a more sophisticated analyst, they can pick that apart, right? Yeah, I mean, that's correct. If if you or an analyst kind of sees a large volume, you know, starting transaction, you know, originating from an exchange, um, you know, depending on how many transactions are done, uh, if you just follow the end of that peel chain um, and, and you see where each of those outputs goes along the way, you can start to, you know, kind of come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, this is the same entity sending coins to the same place. Um, and, you know, with just looking at a standard block explorer, it's, it becomes more difficult to see. Um, you might see a reused address uh, as, as one of the payment, you know, destinations. Um, but, you know, it, when you take a look at this as a transaction graph, um, you know, on OXT, and of course, a lot of the uh, the mainstream chain analysis firms have something similar. Um, the the peel chain becomes even more obvious, where you'll you'll see a, a very clear, um, you know, small, you know, chipping away, kind of as you described. Um, and so, you know, for you know a period of time, um, when these chain analysis firms likely didn't exist, you know, maybe this could have been used as a as a technique to you know, try to obfuscate funds. Um, but now it seems that uh, analysis firms have gotten, you know, a good bit more, um, uh, you know, in tune to, to what, you know, uh, methods Bitcoiners can use. Yeah. And so with the understanding which exchanges it's going to, and I presume that's also because people have different goals when they're using Bitcoin, right? And so some people using Bitcoin don't care about privacy. That's just the straight reality. So there are some people who will not be using these kinds of, you know, stonewall spends and so on. And it may not be possible to do these kinds of spends for large wallets. And so I think that's why the reality is many exchanges, they have like a known cold wallet and that can be tagged and clustered, would you say? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, the mainstream chain analysis firms are if they're not directly working with exchanges, getting provided information, they're they're going out and they're seeding entities. And what I mean by seeding entities is, you know, creating an account at you know XYZ uh, KYC Light Exchange um, to try to tag their their clusters there. Um, you know, so if they they aren't you know collaborating, there are certainly ways to to try to get labels on on a lot of these exchanges. Right, and I think it may well be that even just with publicly available information, in some cases you can see, oh, this, you know, or if you received a payment from somebody and then you can sort of start to see, oh, okay, this came from the Binance. Like if I trace this back enough, this came from Binance or this came from Coinbase or whatever exchange, right? And so I guess just for listeners in your mind, understand that when you send a Bitcoin transaction, you're sending that to a particular address, but then if you if if the analyst is able to trace it back to see what was the source of that money or where did it eventually end up, then that's the way that these... Uh, clustering um, behaviors can be done to try and understand, oh, okay, that's that's kind of the, the layout of the land that, okay, this little area here, that's the Coinbase cluster and this little area there, that's some other exchange cluster, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 
All right. So then I think the next question people would have is how, how was it that you were able to tell uh, the money uh, once it went through the custodial tumbler? So I think that's coming back to what you were saying around like timing analysis and so on, because normally people would say, okay, once you've kind of gone inside the exchange and then they went back out the exchange, how do you, you would have lost the trail then? How did you trace it through there? Well, so, you know, there, there's, uh, we haven't quite gotten to the custodial tumbler part of the uh, Lazarus group, you know, analysis yet. Um, you know, we're sort of documenting the phases that uh, the IRS uh, describes in the complaint. You know, so phase one was hack and peel to um, a first round of KYC kind of light exchanges. Uh, you know, they then use those KYC light exchanges as, you know, basically custodial tumblers and then peeled for a third time to, um, you know, uh, fiat off-ramp exchanges. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know exactly what the IRS did to acquire, you know, the information of how they went from, you know, KYC light exchange to, uh, you know, the, their fiat exit. Um, I'm going to guess that, you know, they have labels on, you know, the KYC light exchanges and they, you know, serve some subpoenas or, or you know, reached out to these exchanges and asked for information. Um, they certainly have, uh, in the complaint, they certainly have account names, email addresses, um, pseudonyms, um, and a couple other, you know, identifying information that they could only really get from directly from the exchange. So I'm assuming that they reached out to the exchanges um, from there and said, okay, you know, we saw that these funds went in, um, you know, these transactions were associated with the original hacks. Uh, are these transactions then associated with any, you know, ID? Um, those IDs were, you know, provided. And then they watched the, uh, the funds move to the, you know, the, the fiat exit. Uh, and they likely basically repeated the same process. Yeah, I see. And so essentially the, IR, the IRS or the DOJ or uh, FBI would have gone and asked that exchange saying, hey, you know, XYZ exchange, we know this address at this time uh, it came in. Who is, the, who is that deposit for? Do you have an ID underlying that person on your exchange? And then they would ask for that info. Yeah, correct. And you can even see in the complaint, they have some of these um, ridiculous KYC, you know, fake photos um, with the, you know, the alleged conspirators uh, basically used uh, doctored photos, um, you know, fake passports, fake uh, T-shirt models with, you know, the, the same T-shirt, but a different face. Um, you know, so, you know, there's certainly a ways uh, around KYC that, uh, you know, these guys are aware of and they, they certainly do, um, you know, but, uh, you know, when it was sort of all said and done, the, the complaint documents, you know, the hacking process. It documents, uh, you know, how much fiat that they were able to cash out, you know, at the attributed, uh, you know, second phase of exchanges. Uh, and then from there, the, the complaint mentions only once, uh, you know, a, another cluster uh, that did not get sent to an exchange. Um, and instead, what they say is, you know, the funds were mixed and you know, that was basically the end of that sort of paragraph or that portion of the complaint. Um, so, you know, I, I then followed the, the funds from the, the cluster that was mentioned uh, into Chip Mixer, mixer uh, the custodial tumbler, um, which is one of probably one of the more well-known and, and more used uh, tumblers. Um, and from there, you know, we can circle back to, okay, how did I, how did I track funds across Chip Mixer? And, um, you know, we had already sort of given that, that little bit of background about the difference between a, a coin join and a, 
and a custodial tumbler. Um, the custodial tumbler won't necessarily return funds, uh, you know, in the same transaction that a user, uh, you know, has an input in. Uh, so there's a there's a second hop, you know, at least in the way that chip mixer works, um, where you know the initial transaction in chip mixer they're they're trying to make look like a fake coin join. Uh, they'll take you know a, a handful of inputs and then they'll spit them out in uh, in certain denominations, uh, and they're all uh, I think factors of two of um, some base two fifty six number. I can't remember which ones exactly, but. Um, they, they effectively, they, they look like coin joins, but they're not, um, you know, so they'll, there'll be a, a second, uh, you know, transaction after the fake kind of coin joins and chip mixer in which the, the funds are then returned to the user. And so, um, what I saw was that there was about 160 Bitcoin that was sent to basically all to the same mix and all originated from the conspirators, you know, pre-mix cluster. And, you know, there's a difference between one other difference between a, a custodial tumbler and a, uh, a non-custodial coin join is that, you know, obviously there's the risk of fund loss uh, associated with a custodial tumbler. So users aren't likely to keep their funds on a custodial tumbler for a very long amount of time. Um, they likely are, are trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. Um, and so what I saw was, uh, you know, a significant volume um, basically heading out from the same transaction as the funds came in, um, you know, just one hop removed uh, because of the custodial nature. And from there, I was able to follow the funds to, to you know, various destinations. Yeah, that's really incredible stuff. And so it, it sort of comes to that idea of you're kind of using logic to understand, well, okay, this is a custodial service. These people do not want to leave funds on there any longer than they must. So they're going to try to pull them out. And then as I read from your report, you've leveraged some additional metadata, things like, as we mentioned earlier, the volume correlation aspects. And then also there were certain common inputs and destinations. And then those were what enabled you to tie these together and understand that, oh, this looks like it's actually the same actor, even though there's some obfuscation going on on the chain. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's there's a couple other things that can done can be done um, to to de-anonymize the flows across either a coin join or a, a you know a custodial tumbler. The worst being is the combination of basically pre-mix funds and post-mix funds, and I saw that here as well. Um, it was you know in one small occurrence, but you know it sort of kind of tied a lot of the picture together. Okay, this is this is very likely the same entity um, that controls funds on both sides of this chip mixer. And so just for listeners who are unfamiliar, I guess that concept of premix and postmix. So premix is basically your wallet that you were dealing with before trying to go through all this mixed stuff. And then what's happened in this case is withdrawing it out from the custodial tumbler actually came back, which is like a postmix that actually came back into that premix cluster. And that's what you're saying enables you to tie it together, right? Yeah, correct. Awesome. Uh, and then, uh, so in terms of the context, just for the numbers, it looks like uh, the complaint, so the complaint says 67 million uh, of withdrawals from the noted exchanges to Chinese banks, and additionally, another 1.5 million in iTunes gift cards using Paxful peer-to-peer exchange. So that's interesting, isn't it? And I think it's funny that um, people try to say, like, oh, you know, uh, 
like if there are people who speak bad about say coin joining but in reality people can still sort of use exchanges almost as a custodial tumbler of kinds of sorts right yeah i mean that's correct and and so you know the 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 complaint kind of fingers um peel chains as the obfuscation technique and while that certainly was an obfuscation technique used i mean as we've sort of discussed and as you know the irs clearly shows um, you know, peel chains are easily trackable, you know, if you're going to sit down and take the time to do sort of a, a more in-depth analysis. So, you know, in our opinion, um, the, uh, the sort of the KYC light exchanges uh, were served as more of the general obfuscation technique. Um, you know, they basically acted as custodial tumblers on chains and, and they required the IRS to go out and, and uh, start knocking on doors and asking for additional information if they wanted to continue uh, this tracking process. Um, and I guess it's also worth noting that, um, you know, some of the, one of the uh, major destinations of, of these coins was Huobi, um, you know, where the uh, the conspirators were effectively trying to cash out into fiat. Um, we, we keep running into Huobi in a lot of our analyses. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to ask that question, right? Um, so in this context, what does KYC light mean? Um, you know, so there's always, well, we, we always try to, to advocate for, you know, no KYC. Uh, and if there's, there's sort of no such thing as no KYC. You always are dealing with some kind of a counterparty. Um, you know, even if you're just trading with your friends, you know, they know that they sold you coins. Um, you know, but on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you have sort of the, the Coinbase where they're, you know, taking your uh, a picture of you holding your driver's license, your bank account information, uh, social security number, um, and they're you know basically now using all of that to sell to the government, um, and everything in between you know sort of falls on some kind of a spectrum, um, and so some exchanges they don't require anything you know from users. All they need is an email address. Um, you know that might be you know considered KYC information, and as we sort of saw in this report, um, you know even just the uh, uh, you know having an email address can be sort of used uh, kind of against people, um, you know. But what we mean by sort of KYC light is is uh, you know an exchange that doesn't require you to give passport, driver's license, you know, bank account, kind of any other information. Um, the KYC light exchanges tend to be exchanges that you know they're basically shitcoin casinos. You know, they don't they don't have fiat banking ties. Um, you know, so they're not required to really take any of that information. I'm also interested to talk a little bit about uh, some of the different uh, approaches that these people were using. So as we've discussed, they used ChipMixer uh, going through Huobi, and it looks like they've also used Wasabi. So can you tell us a little bit about their uh, efforts there? Yeah, so, um, you know, again, where the, where the complaint kind of leaves off, um, it identifies, uh, you know, several hundred Bitcoin in a cluster, uh, and then effectively says the coins were mixed and the report basically stops. Um, you know, I just described the process of the mixing through uh, chip mixer. Um, but what we've also found was that funds from the conspirators cluster uh, were merged with a, a very large uh, separate entity, um, entities cluster, um, which has been providing a significant amount of liquidity to Wasabi for, you know, basically since the end of, of last year. Um, you know, this was sort of the first hint at, uh, you know, an identification of who this entity might be. 
Um, we have a couple of ideas based on some of the information that was provided in the report or in the complaint um, about what the entity might be. Um, but, you know, basically from there, you know, we got our first kind of idea that, uh, you know, these guys may also be using Wasabi. And if they're using Wasabi, uh, what are some of the techniques that they may be using and what are some of the ways that uh, you were essentially able to tie them together? Yeah, so, you know, again, um, a lot of, uh, you know, the uh, attacks on coin joins tend to be based on volume and timing. Um, you know, the problem with sending uh, such a large amount of volume, you know, through, a, a, you know, a relatively small volume, uh, you know, coin join uh, is that you tend to stand out. Um, and so, you know, that tends to be one of the, the biggest things, you know, that, that these guys do wrong. You know, it's what we saw with plus token and is kind of what we see again here. Um, you know, an entity depositing several hundred Bitcoin within the space of, I don't know, uh, you know, a day or two, uh, and then withdrawing them all effectively to the same place um, is kind of what we see. Um, you know, one of the other issues that I've sort of, you know, for the, for the first time was able to document in this case was, um, you know, the address reuse uh, that these guys have been uh, basically suffering from in the Wasabi mixer uh, is, is pretty, pretty bad. Um, and what I, was, for the first time, was able to see was, uh, you know, an unmixed change output basically get paid to a, a mixed output address, which effectively de-anonymizes, you know, the uh, the uh, the post-mix spend uh, without the user having to do anything. That's very unfortunate, and uh, it also impacts the privacy of the other people in that mix because now that's you know there's less entities who are unknown, right? Because that, some of them have been tied together. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, these guys shouldn't have been reusing addresses. Uh, I doubt that they were trying to de-anonymize themselves. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of happens and it does affect kind of everyone. Mm. So these are some of the, I guess, design flaws that you've called out here in the report around uh, Wasabi. So you've mentioned the peeling, the peeling style, peel chain, uh, the address reuse. Uh, and then also the post-mix spending tools, or rather the lack of post-mix spending tools. So uh, what are you getting at there with the lack of post-mix spending tools? Why, why is that important? Yeah, so, you know, to, to document at least a little bit of what the process was that I saw here again is, is um, you know, the, the entity mixes their coins. They get a bunch of mixed outputs in whatever the current denomination is, you know, some flavor of 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, et cetera. Uh, and then they returned a, a, a change output in that kind of same uh, same transaction. And if the change output is paid to a, a the same address as a mixed output, it you know effectively de-anonymizes de that mixed output. You know it's it's pretty simple. Um, then that change output will be remixed uh, and kind of continue on and hopefully not you know get sucked into any more address reuse. Um, but you know. Uh, it's technically not a cluster in sort of the formal sense, but you know when a, a, a change output is paid to a mixed output address, it's basically a, a cluster precursor, um, and then you know the cluster will sort of survive on the way out of the mixer, um, just based on normal kind of post-mix spending habits, where people will tend to consolidate, you know, a, a couple of uh, mixed outputs at the same time, and so when we say you know kind of post-mix tools, uh, how important those kind of can be. Um, you know, a, a, a sort of formal uh, post-mix tool that would break that cluster, you know, would at least make that, you know, somewhat 
more difficult to, to track. At least the cluster hopefully wouldn't grow, um, in which case it sort of does here. Okay, so just want to make sure I've understood you correctly there. So essentially what we're talking about here is once you've gone through the mix, you've got your coin sitting on the other side. And if you don't have the right tool set, when you're spending out of that, you may inadvertently join the wrong pieces together. Uh, and is that also related to the concept of an input merge? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of related. So, um, you know, the, an input merge, uh, sort of goes back to the, uh, the traditional terminology for a cluster, um, the common input ownership heuristic where, you know, for the majority of, of, uh, you know, Bitcoin's history, um, you know, spends that, uh, you know, included multiple inputs can basically be assumed to be the same entity. And again, this is a heuristic, um, but, um, you know, when, when we say, you know, post-mix spending uh, is then merging multiple inputs on the way out of the mixer, um, we're then sort of formalizing that cluster by kind of the, the common input ownership heuristic. Gotcha. And uh, you also noted here the, the use of multiple mixing clients with Wasabi. So what's the implication there for users? Uh, yeah, you know, we, we had seen sort of at least kind of two phases that might be attributable to the, uh, uh, um, the conspirators, uh, one in which they were running up to, you know, kind of six mixers, uh, six mixing clients at the same time. And, uh, you know, the, the second phase, which was, uh, I think, at least two. Um, and so, you know, just sort of based on the way that Wasabi operates their fee structure, um, what this, you know, number one does is it inflates everyone's fees. Um, you know, fees are, are calculated proportional to the number of participants, um, you know, or in this case, the number of mixing clients. Um, and then, you know, so users are basically paying an inflated, you know, price for a somewhat lower quality mix. Um, especially if then those coins are, you know, then merged on the way out and attributable all to the same entity. You also note here around unequal amounts. So I guess for listeners who may not have used Wasabi, the idea is if you have put in, so I think the typical, like the typical minimum amount is 0.1 BTC or 10 million sats. Uh, but if you put in more than that, it will then uh, progressively sort of cut that down into unequal sizes. So is there a problem there in terms of unequal amount mixing in your view? When we think of mixing, you know, Wasabi was one of the first to kind of popularize the term anonymity set. You know, you, that's the number of identical outputs, uh, you know, after the mix has been completed. Um, and when we say kind of unequal mixing amounts, you know, what we're kind of referring to is on the input side. Um, you know, an entity that's uh, obviously depositing, you know, a, a very large amount directly into the coin join transaction will tend to stand out. Um, and then, uh, you know, based on the actual unequal mixing denominations uh, that Wasabi sort of, uh, you know, imposes, uh, there's a 0 0.1, a 0 0.2, 0 0.4, and so on that will double uh, depending on, you know, the size of the inputs that are available. And what you'll kind of see is that, you know, on the on the higher end of those outputs, uh, those are almost always attributable to only a handful of entities on the input side, and that's what we mean by kind of uh, you know the uh, unequal mixing amounts being a problem. Right. I guess put in other words, it's simply that there are just not that many kind of rich entities who are putting in you know ten BTC inputs, 
And so because of that, it really dramatically reduces your actual anon set of how many people are able to deposit that kind of size in. And then that is kind of the clue or the string that you can pull on to understand, oh, wait, this might be this this particular entity or this conspirator, for example. Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly what we mean. Yeah. Um, and also you, you mentioned here this concept of structural liquidity enforcement. So what are you getting at with that idea? Um, so there is no effectively no structural liquidity re requirement to trigger a mix, uh, at least in Wasabi and, and, and I think even in join market as well. Um, and what, I, what do I mean by that is, is that, uh, you know, there's if enough people get together, the mix will basically trigger. Um, it doesn't need to be new incoming liquidity into the mixer. It could basically just be recycled liquidity, um, which will sort of transition us to kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the next report. Um, you know, but, but um, you know, the way that Wasabi at least works is there's, there's a, you know, a timer. If the timer goes off, the mix triggers, regardless of whether or not there was, you know, new liquidity inbound or not. Um, and again, you know, kind of the same sort of philosophy applies to, to join market. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the other, re the, the other rejoinder uh, may be that uh, you can remix the unmixed change. And I guess some of this is spilling over into the, the second report. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we should uh, discuss the second report and, and then discuss this general idea of unmixed change and how do we deal with it. Um, so you've got this other report here um, called the toxic recall attack. So what's going on here? What, what is a toxic recall attack? Uh, so, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we saw, um, you know, an, an old Reddit post kind of get recycled, uh, for the first time in a few years. Um, and so, you know, we dug a little bit into the Reddit post. Um, apparently a user claims to have had their, their web wallet hacked. Uh, the coins, you know, were removed from their web wallet to, you know, uh, allegedly, uh, you know, a wallet controlled by, you know, the hackers. Um, the coins again sat for I think a year and a half or so, and then eventually were were mixed through Join Market. Um, and so you know the uh, the entity mixed two separate uh, two separate UTXOs. Uh, one was for 45 BTC, the other one was for 400 BTC. And uh, you know the way that this sort of uh, the way to kind of describe unmixed change um, is that. You know, on the input side of a, of a transaction, um, you know, Join Market or Wasabi will allow the user to directly deposit into kind of that uh, directly into the mix. Um, you know, so for example, if if uh, we have 45 BTC entering, you know, the uh, entering a Join Market mix, um, you know, the mix denomination is is one BTC. Uh, You'll, the 45 BTC input will get a 44 BTC uh, unmixed change output and a one BTC, you know, mixed output. Uh, so when we're, we're referring to unmixed change, we're referring to that kind of monotonically decreasing, uh, you know, unmixed change output. And what we can kind of see is that over multiple transactions, uh, you know, that monotonic decrease will kind of continue. Um, as as the uh, unmixed change is sort of you know peeled through uh through the coin join and so i guess w what you're getting at here is also the use of so in the samurai whirlpool model you're getting at this idea that the tx0 that sort of premix 
step is what helps get rid of that problem, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically exactly what it does is it, it creates those sort of homogenous or relatively homogenous inputs. Um, you know, at least in the TX zero model, um, the, the premixers, they, they're a little bit larger inputs than the pool denomination because they're paying the, uh, the, uh, minor fee. Um, it's technically impossible to have identical inputs, uh, on the, ins on the input and output side of a, of a coin join transaction. Someone has to pay the minor fee, but at least, you know, with the TX zero model, um, this uh, this unmixed change problem is removed uh, directly from the mix. The, the unmixed change gets kind of kept separate and, you know, in the uh, premix premix wallet. Right. And I suppose uh, someone could potentially, the rejoinder might be something like, well, that's more costly because you're having to do an additional transaction. And I presume the response would be basically, well, stiff. That's, that's the <laughs> only way to do this, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's the closest thing that we have to an ideal coin join, um, you know, and you've got to, got to, got to wait and you've got to, got to pay, uh, got to pay to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're right. That would be, so it takes a little bit longer to do it because now you've got to wait for this TX zero to clear through and then your coin join, your actual coin join can occur. So that's, again, that's kind of comparing some of the different models in terms of, uh, coin joining. Um, so I guess bringing it back to this join market case study. So there's a user grid chain. So they did a Reddit post saying, Oh, look, I lost 445 BTC. Um, I'm offering a bounty if you can track it down. And so in this story, it looks like those BTC were sitting for 1.5 years. So, I mean, a common story with some of these hacks is they, they'll do the hack and then they'll just sit on the coins for a little while before then they try to run it through a mix. And so in this story, it looks like they tried to go through join market for their mixing and then your, your analysis was uh, essentially able to try and unwind some components of the mix and understand where did those coins end up afterwards. So can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you did that and you know, what was the story there? Yeah, um, you know, so we sort of described the peeling nature of, of unmixed change. Um, you know, I, I gave a little bit of an example and I said, you know, two separate UTXOs um, were, were mixed, um, allegedly mixed from you know, grid, grid chains, uh, original holdings. A 45 BTC, uh, you know, UTXO and a 400 BTC UTXO. Um, now, the 45 BTC UTXO doesn't stand out quite as much as the 400 BTC UTXO, um, and that you know sort of presents problem number one. Um, you know that that's a very obvious peel chain when you have you know 400 BTC on, you know, the input side. Uh, you have a one BTC mix output and you know, uh, a 399 BTC change, uh, you know, this sort of becomes obvious. Uh, and I'm trying to, you know, describe a visual, you know, visual process, which is the transaction graph and how the 400 BTC will slowly get chipped away at over time or, or as mixes continue. Um, so definitely go check out the rep report. Um, the visuals will, will absolutely help, uh, help this explanation. Um, you know, so we followed the 400 BTC input uh, basically across the mixer um, as it was slowly peeled down uh, and mixed. Uh, and what we saw was there were, uh, you know, sort of two sep or three separate regimes of, of kind of mixing. Um, you know, the first where the, f the 400 BTC input was, was acting as a, uh, as a maker, market maker in joint market, providing liquidity. 
um, they were getting a lot of you know much smaller outputs you know in the order of one BTC uh, and then a period where they began to act as the taker uh, to try to at least based on what I could tell try to mix their coins a little bit faster um, and so instead of offering liquidity they began taking liquidity and they began taking liquidity in, in a, a very kind of uh, very large amount um, you know the the average uh, the average mixed output before and after uh, uh, the well before they as they were acting as the maker I think was around 5 BTC or 9 BTC and as they were acting as the taker uh, jumped to around 25. Um, it's just to kind of show the difference, uh, you know, in regimes there. And during the taker regime, um, there aren't that many people that are offering that kind of liquidity. And so what we saw was uh, the same, you know, handful of outputs that were capable of providing the liquidity that uh, the alleged thief of grid chains coins was, was demanding in the taker model. Um, and so we saw basically the recycling of the same coins that followed along with the, uh, the uh, unmixed change. Um, and that sort of introduced us into the, you know, the toxic recall attack. Yeah, so it's a really fascinating story. And I think um, it's really, really cool analysis that you were able to do because it sounds to me like no one else has done this uh, up until recently. I think yourself and I think Laurent MT also... Uh, um, mentioned some of this stuff on when I saw some of your earlier discussion on Twitter saying, oh, hold on a sec, this there might be a bit more to this story than we first thought, and actually you can uh, de-anonymize some of that. Yeah, so I mean, the the, the, the hard assumptions here that uh, you know kind of kick off the analysis are, number one, I'm, I know I'm looking at a join market transaction, right? That may or may not be the case. Um, there's ways to confirm that, you know, you can go and you can check the order book, which at least is what we saw on the Reddit post users going, yeah, we confirm this. I see these mixes go by in, in my order book. Um, and then, you know, kind of the next level of assumption is that I know how the mixer works and I know what it's doing. Um, and what I mean by that is I know how it treats unmixed change. I know how many inputs, uh, from a previous transaction it, it will, the, it will accept into a, a following transaction. Um, and you kind of also have to make the, the, the final assumption, which is that, you know, the user is only operating one mixing client. And from there, that sort of opens the door for the, the toxic recall attack, um, which basically takes that kind of unmixed peel chain. And it says, uh, I know that the owner of the original 400 BTC input is now the owner of this unmixed change output, you know, a half dozen transactions later. And if I know that, and I know that uh, mixed outputs from a previous mix are also sent to that unmixed change output, then I can, by the process of elimination, go back a couple of transactions and eliminate you know, the mixed outputs that get sent to that unmixed change. Um, and the logic being that the the recycled outputs that follow along that unmixed change don't belong to the entity that controls the unmixed change. And you can sort of do a process of elimination attack where you had maybe five, six, seven, eight, you know, mixed outputs. And depending on how many outputs follow along with that unmixed change, uh, even one or two or three or four transactions later, you can, you can cut down uh, the number of possible uh, mixed outputs from a previous mix that could be controlled by that entity. It's sort of like a process of 
uh, elimination. And so I think the question would also be around remixing or in the join market model, that's uh, tumble, the Tumblr script that you might do multiple rounds of mixing. So how does that concept uh, play into this? Does basically, uh, basically the question is, does doing lots of rounds of tumbling make it harder for this attack to be successful? So as, you know, as long as there is unmixed change kind of present in the mixer, there's a risk that this attack is possible. And again, you know, the, the attack, at least from, you know, this one specific case study, it ranged from, you know, uh, an anonymity set that was, you know, minus one from the original to, you know, completely de-anonymizing, you know, an output. Um, and what we saw was that, at least in this case, the de-anonymized output was remixed, um, even though it was a later, you know, eventually likely sent to the same destination. Um, but, you know, kind of the, the point to circle back to is that as long as the unmixed change is present, you know, this attack remains possible. And again, there's a, a severity scale of, of what the attack will actually kind of accomplish. Um, you know, but so how do we get to kind of mitigating, you know, this attack, at least in the current kind of uh, coordinator model that, that join market has. And, you know, number one is to, you know, uh, sort of use, I guess, the pre-tumbler script, which will, instead of taking that 400 BTC input and peeling it directly, you know, through join market, we'll split it beforehand and make it, you know, at least a little bit less obvious. And what this will uh, effectively do is, is hopefully uh, reduce the number of unmixed change outputs that are attributable to that entity. Um, you know, there still is unmixed change present, but instead of 400 BTC, it's only five or one, you know, and there are only, a, a, you know, a few peeling chains, you know, in, in each, uh, as each input is sort of mixed. Uh, that will reduce, you know, kind of the uh, the likelihood of this, this attack happening. Um, and then, you know, you get to the actual remix uh, portion. I think the, the Tumblr script for join market defaults to anywhere from seven to 15 remixes. And what we saw was that this entity was not remixing their coins. Well, I shouldn't say not remixing. They were likely participating in, in two, you know, kind of at most in sort of the critical part of this attack remixes. Um, and what remixing will do will just, again, further reduce the likelihood that you're, you know, going to be affected as severely by this attack. Can we just walk that through one more time? Just with the 400 BTC, uh, essentially you mentioned like a pre-tumbler script. So what would that, that what would be occurring at that stage? Like theoretically, this is an idea, right? What would be occurring at that stage to help reduce the, you know, the possibility of the toxic recall attack? Yeah, and I think that this actually exists in join market. Um, you know, somebody will correct me if this isn't true, but I'm fairly certain that I've heard this mentioned before that, you know, something like this does exist. And I don't know if it's part of the actual Tumblr script or it's called, you know, something, you know, slightly different or pre-mixed Tumblr. Um, but anyway, what, you know, the, the, the theory would be that before you enter the mix, you, you basically engage in a bunch of peeling chains um, that will take your 400 BTC and slowly split it or split it across multiple transactions and whittle down from that instead of 400, you know, direct deposit into the coin join, um, the 400 BTC deposit, at some point you'll get to some smaller output amount, let's call it 20, um, 20 BTC. And that, that will then eventually be sent into the mixer. Um, and what I mean there then is that if you have only 20 BTC, then you're sort of in this more uh, high liquidity regime. Um, you're less likely to have a very long peel chain. Uh, it'll be shorter. And sort of the you know that will will mitigate some of the uh, you know the 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 risks of this attack. 
I see, yeah. And so I guess you're also getting at this idea that, so similar to what we were saying before, how many people have 400 BTC to mix? Well, not as many as would have 20 BTC to mix. And so there's a bigger group of people who you can, because ultimately it's about hiding in a crowd, correct? Correct. Yeah. I mean, and it sort of gets, you know, to this idea of, uh, you know, how homogenous are the, the participants of a mix? You know, how similar are they, uh, the inputs and the outputs? And as you get sort of towards that more liquid, you know, range, you know, uh, you tend to blend better with the crowd. I see. Yeah. Um, and so I guess part of this just relies on the analyst uh, having knowledge of how the coordinator works and then sort of thinking through the implications of that and then, you know, at, uh, doing this kind of analysis. Um, and so you're also talking about uh, kind of understanding how the coordinator works, uh, what sort of changes, if any, uh, could be done to how the coordinator works or to how the model works? You know, and so I, I sort of explain that, you know, as long as the unmixed change is kind of present, this attack is is possible. But, you know, things can be done to mitigate that. And like we said, there's the, the remixing, the, uh, you know, the, the premix tumbling. Um, but there's also uh, one other thing that the coordinator can do, which is to limit the number of previously seen uh, inputs. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if, if we participate in a mix with, with five outputs and then you know, we have another mix later, only one uh, of the mix outputs from the first mix is allowed to go to the second mix. Um, you know, that, that will also you know, help sort of mitigate this kind of attack. It doesn't totally eliminate you know, the chances of this, but will reduce, you know, kind of the risks again. As I understand of the Samurai Whirlpool model, there are certain rules in place around how the mix may take place, right? And there's, it's sort of, I think there's, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I know uh, TDev often tweets this out, so talking about how no, uh, no previously seen, that's, that's what you're getting at here, right? Yep, limited to one. Um, you know, it, it changes the transaction graph uh, somewhat significantly. Um, you know, and, and reduces kind of the, uh, the chances of this attack. Um, you know, and there's a couple other things that can be done. And, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, earlier, which is uh, liquidity enforcement. Um, you know, and again, I keep coming back to the Whirlpool model because it's, it's one of the only other models that's somewhat different from the join market and the Wasabi model. Uh, and, you know, for just sort of users uh, or listeners um, comparison, in Whirlpool, uh, there needs to be at least two but up to three uh, new inputs that haven't been mixed yet that are required to trigger a mix. Uh, and that's what we mean by structural liquidity enforcement. Those two or three new inputs are from a fresh TX0, are from a new user who just deposited coins into you know, the mixer. And uh, that's what we mean by structural liquidity enforcement is that we need to have you know, new funds coming into the mixer in order for the mix to trigger instead of just recycling kind of the same volume, which is what kind of led to this attack or at least made it worse. Right. And uh, another question I have on this structural liquidity enforcement, if we consider just broadly, if like, so in the Samurai model, for example, you need, uh, typically it's three new uh, mixes and two uh, people who are already in the pool and they're just remixing. Is there, and, and uh, as I understand, I think the Samurai guys have mentioned how they might occasionally switch that the other way to say, okay, we'll allow only two new people and then three remixes. Is there some kind of implication there that it's kind of 
difficult for the whole ecosystem to move through. Well, obviously, not the whole eco- not all of Bitcoin is going to move through a Samurai Whirlpool, right? Obviously, but it it makes it difficult for there to be mixes taking place if you're requiring a, a high number of those people to be quote unquote new mixes. Do you, do you get what I'm trying to get at here? So. In if you if you go back and you read some of the anonymity and mixer research, um, there's you know debate about uh, the term latency, which is kind of what we're getting at here. Um, you know, latency is is how long uh, you know do you have to wait you know to really get the privacy that you want. And you know this kind of comes back to the whirlpool model, which is that you know we really want to prioritize that privacy as much as possible. And that means, you know, you might have to wait for the new liquidity to come because we've deemed that, you know, a structural necessity for providing, you know, what we consider to be, you know, sufficient anonymity, sufficient privacy. Um, you know, it certainly is a cost. You know, users certainly do have to wait at times, um, you know, but when the liquidity is there, the mixes trigger very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're not going to have all of, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, users shoving themselves through uh, the Whirlpool mixer anytime soon. But um, yeah, you know, it, it is a challenge for users who have kind of been trained, uh, you know, to get everything that they want kind of here and now. Um, you're sort of dealing with this, uh, a new problem that a lot of people aren't used to. You know, they're used to, um, you know, picking up their f- phone and logging into Twitter and, and getting what they want kind of immediately. You know, if you throw Tor into the mix, you might have to wait a little while, wait for um, you know, the relays to open and, and, but, you know, even that's still very low latency compared to, uh, you know, some of this mixing technology. And so, you know, it is, it is important, um, you know, because it's not just about, you know, the time that we're kind of used to, you know, the, you know, the minute to minute, it's, it's about, you know, uh, how many transactions are coming in, you know, how quickly are blocks being processed? Um, you know, users kind of have to get used to, uh, you know, waiting a little bit. It's sort of like there might be a certain population within the Bitcoin world, let's call it five or ten percent of them who really who actually care about privacy. And then it, for those people, they, they're sort of having to wait for some new new uh, fresh blood, if you will. They're, they're having to wait for new coins to come in before they can actually get their mix done. But I suppose over time, there'll be enough of a flow of people kind of moving through the mixer and then doing whatever they say they wanted to spend. And then now they want to come back through uh, or the other person they spent to, they want to go through the mixer. So that you sort of have to wait for that flow to come through, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and you know, I know Whirlpool was designed with sort of a mobile first kind of approach. Um, you know, it's got... Uh, you know, five participants in each mix, um, you know, hopefully that should, you know, kind of help trigger mixes, uh, you know, a bit more quickly. Um, but the other thing people can do is, you know, uh, a lot of people, they're not really in a rush to spend, um, at least not yet. Uh, you know, so you can queue up your coins and, and just wait and let them mix and let it ride, uh, you know, wait it out. Um, the mixes are happening. They're happening, you know, uh, you know, new record liquidity kind of every month. Um, you know, so it seems to be growing pretty organically. Um, you know, I, I at least see, uh, the number of, uh, of, uh, people, you know, lurking in the telegram, uh, groups, at least in my opinion, seem to be, uh, complaining a little bit less about having to wait. Um, you know, as, as, you know, mobile mixing has come out, uh, liquidity has definitely improved. Of course. And do you have any thoughts on 
at what point it makes sense to switch over from having three, like enforcing three new participants in that mix versus having enforcing only two new participants in the mix. Do you have any thoughts on when is a good time to switch over for that? Or is that just kind of like a, a subjective judgment call? Uh, I don't know how it's configured at the moment. I'd have to ask TDEV and see what, what the, the current requirements are. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't get too hung up on, you know, three versus two, you know, right now as things are sort of still developing. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're still trying to observe how users are behaving, uh, how they're, you know, interacting with the service before we kind of get some of these finer details, I guess, uh, ironed out. Just a, another point that a skeptic, a skeptic listening might think, well, hang on, you're part of the samurai team and you're just throwing shit at the competitors. I mean, you have a motive to play up what you feel are design flaws. Uh, what, what would you say in response to that? Uh, you know, I guess first off is I, I think that we've pretty clearly demonstrated what the flaws are. Um, you know, this has been present in the original CoinJoin technology for some time. Um, you know, and I encourage users, uh, developers, and anybody else to take a look at the work that I've done. Peer review is certainly welcome. Um, Waxwing has been asking Laurent and I a couple of questions on Mastodon, and we've been happy to, you know, kind of walk him through our thought process. Um, you know, so, you know, number one is don't take my word for it. I'd be happy if you go and, and try to uh, invalidate the analysis, uh, invalidate the attack. Uh, that, would, that would be great. Um, but I think it's valid. Uh, I don't think I'm playing up... Uh, the uh, the implications here. Uh, if you read the report, you'll see that there's a range. Um, it's not you know the end of the world. Um, so I, I I don't think that we've uh, we've played up this attack uh, as much as as much as uh, you know maybe some people will think. Um, and you know just to you know definitely reiterate um, the joint market team. You know Chris Belcher and Adam Gibson. You know they've done a lot for for Bitcoin privacy, um, and I, they're obviously very very competent devs. Um, and, you know, they wouldn't have gotten involved in Bitcoin privacy if they didn't deeply care. Um, you know, so I think that those guys, they're, they're certainly, uh, they're certainly willing to take a look at some of this stuff and make the changes that they can, or, you know, propose, you know, something else that, uh, hopefully will, will, uh, take care of some of these issues. Also, unsure if you've uh, had a chance to look much into CoinSwap and whether you believe that would, uh, improve the situation. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask. Um, I've given it a read-through. Um, you know, I know that we're still sort of at some of the conceptual kind of architecture phase. Um, but, you know, it's very exciting tech. Um, it, you know, it, it it's it's different from CoinJoin, um, and at least in my mind, and I don't want to, you know, brutalize this too much, as I know Chris Belcher is in the process of sort of, you know, getting this kind of worked out. But in my mind, it, it sort of operates as a... Uh, um, a non-custodial shared wallet, sort of similar to a Tumblr. Um, you can basically do whatever you want. Uh, you can, uh, and it will sever the transaction graph, something that's not possible with CoinJoin. Um, you know, so I sort of look forward to seeing this as it gets, uh, you know, developed further. Um, one of the questions that I at least do have, and hopefully, you know, we'll see get addressed in the, you know, as, as this thing gets unrolled out was, um, you know, the, the, the implication that this somehow scales better than, you know, traditional CoinJoin. Um, from my first read of the paper, it looked like there were multiple parties taking part in multiple transactions with multi-sig inputs and multi-sig outputs. Um, and to me, that doesn't pass the, uh, the, the major scaling uh, uh, smell test. 
Uh, maybe there, uh, I'm sure, sure someone will tell me, you know, will run me, run the math by me uh, and explain how this will be better by, you know, 50% or something along those lines. But I don't see it being, uh, you know, an order of magnitude difference between kind of a, a traditional coin join. But, you know, as I said, you know, this is sort of a, uh, in the conceptual phase, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how things develop. Right. And it could be also, well, potentially Taproot may uh, make a difference there as well in terms of um, the cost, uh, in terms of chain space. Well, um, so, uh, you, you yeah. got you got to read the, I, I think you, I'm sure you've read it, but at least my interpretation was that um, Belcher was looking to, to use ECDSA multi-sig and not move to Taproot. Um, and I, at least from my interpretation of, of uh, you know, my reading of the uh, the proposal um, was that ECDSA has quote unquote a higher anonymity set, you know, because right now we're sort of starting at, you know, Taproot doesn't exist yet, um, and we'll have to eventually grow into adoption, and you know who knows what that adoption will look like. So it sounds like he's he's planning on going with ECDSA, which won't get quite the uh, the scaling benefits. Of course, of course, um, agreed there. Um, uh, so thinking about this more broadly. Uh, what are some of the implications of this uh, recent chain analysis work for the future of Bitcoin privacy? Are we all screwed? Yeah, you know, we're at the point where the Monero maximalists will, you know, put pause on the, you know, the podcast and quote tweet this and say, haha, we told you, um, you know, but, you know, privacy will kind of continue to be an uphill battle for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. Um, you know, every day privacy gets harder. It's not just in Bitcoin, um, you know, but again, you know, we the, the, the chain is entirely transparent. You know, we can't assume that we are the only ones that know about these flaws. And we have to have to assume that, uh, you know, chain analysis and, and their ilk are also doing the same things. And it's very certain that they are, um, you know, so, you know, the things that we can do are, you know, basically do nothing and continue, you know, using the systems that we have, uh, dealing with some of the, the shortcomings and trying to do our best, or we can, you know, use the better solutions that are out there or, you know, continue to, you know, improve as, as we sort of talked about with basically CoinSwap. Um, you know, there's, there's things that can be done. Um, I'm, you know, I'm certainly still here. I'm not giving up, you know, and that's as someone who actively does these types of analyses. Great. Um, and also, I think there's an interesting implication coming out of some of your work here where it's sort of like exchanges are kind of being used to... to "Quote unquote whitewash or bless and cleanse the so-called dirty coins of large exchanges, and in some ways, a skeptic of the chain surveillance companies might say, well, are they kind of selling snake oil here because they're the ones who were meant to be catching this stuff, uh, and be uh, their tool sets were meant to stop this sort of behavior, and yet it has happened, right?" Yeah. Um you know, as long as we still live in the real world, there, there will be people that will need to cash out to fiat, um, at some point. Um, and you know, uh, the, the surveillance firms, um, you know, they like to push the concept of taint. Um, you know, 6102 has done some great, great, uh, infographics on taint, um, that everyone should go check out. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I consider taint to be, you know, snake oil. Um, it's, it's a scary term that, you know, again, some of the sort of privacy maximalist types will, will cling on to and say, you're, you're going to get tainted coins if you use CoinJoin or you use, you know, some type of, you know, some type of service. And, 
you know, I, I think that we've done a pretty good job of, or at least 6102 has done a good job of, of documenting how that's, you know, basically a flawed concept. But, you know, kind of at the end of the day, you know, whether or not taint is kind of a flawed concept is, you know, these, sur you know, surveillance firms, they're applying, you know, these, these proprietary risk scores um, to transactions, you know, to and from different services, um, regardless of the concept of taint you know, um, coins that come in and out of certain services are going to get a higher subjective, uh, you know, risk score. And, um, you know, the way that they sort of, uh, you know, carry that risk across, you know, subsequent transactions is something that, you know, we don't, we don't entirely know, you know, uh, how that's done. Um, you know, we can listen to, you know, their, uh, their webinars, we can, we can listen to some of the information that they're put out there and, you know, kind of keep the caveat in the back of our mind that, you know, this is, uh, they're not incentivized to, to uh, be open about what they do. You know, this is kind of an informa information war where, you know, we in the open source community um, are at a disadvantage because all of our technology, all of the software that we use, uh, it's, it's accessible to anyone. And, you know, we're, we're bumping up against the kind of legacy system, which is, is you know, basically being built with this proprietary risk scoring. Uh, you know, it, it certainly is an issue, um, you know, what these guys are trying to do. Um, absolutely, I agree that they're sort of, uh, you know, creating their own problems that they can solve. Um, you know, it sort of seems that they've been hinting at uh, kind of recently this new kind of concept of, um, you know, uh, last known origin or last known destination where, you know, coins are basically given some type of a blessing if they come from some kind of a trusted exchange. And, you know, a trusted exchange is an exchange that, you know, likely works directly with whichever surveillance firm uh, or, you know, isn't part of whatever kind of network of, of uh, surveillance firms that shares information. Uh, and everywhere else is sort of given this, you know, uh, this non, uh, you know, non-blessing, I guess maybe is a way to put it. Um, you know, I, we'll have to see how things sort of uh, sort of progress from here. But. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've noticed a lot of their, uh, the surveillance firm's recent reports have been absolutely pushing KYC um, pretty hard. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the themes of their, their research, you know, almost always circles back to, well, you know, uh, local Bitcoins is bad or OTC is bad. You know, everyone needs to use a KYC exchange that we can, you know, prevent money laundering. Uh, and I don't see that, that letting up anytime soon. Right. Um, and so listeners who are, uh, I guess, well, first off, uh, take your unblessed coins elsewhere, you pleb. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the, the mindset that we're getting from them. Uh, and so listeners, make sure if you haven't already, go back and listen to my episode with Raphael Jacobi, where we talk about some of those concepts as well. Um, I, I'm also interested to get your thoughts on whether we might see, well, let's say, okay, so the you know, analysis is getting better and better, but also are criminals going to get better? Are they going to start using Samurai Whirlpool? And are they, you know, what's the, what's uh, what's going to happen? Is it a matter of time in your view until let's say some scammer criminal goes and uses Samurai Whirlpool to try and uh, mix their coins? Yeah, I, I, I kind of think it's a, a matter of time. I mean, we've seen them use, uh, you know, Wasabi. We've seen Plus Token go through Wasabi. In our latest, you know, report, we talk about, you know, the conspirators or at least someone that's likely associated with a dark net market, you know, has been providing a lot of liquidity to Wasabi. Um, you know, I, you, you kind of have to, you know, look at it from 
at least here's the way I look at it, which is that, you know, if if Bitcoin and coin joins don't provide, you know, sufficient privacy for, you know, today's labeled criminals, uh, I, I worry that, you know, it won't be able to provide, you know, the privacy that even normal people that aren't looking to break the law, you know, in the future, the kind of privacy that they need. You know, today, right now, they might not be, you know, labeled as generic criminals, um, you know, but with some of the recent turmoil that we've seen kind of across the world, um, you know, the term uh, criminal and uh, terrorist has been getting thrown around, um, you know, a lot, a lot more liberally than it used to, um, where people are sort of, or, or government agencies are, are basically now sort of unilaterally deciding who is a criminal and who is not a criminal. You know, so just because, you know, right now we might consider, you know, dark net market vendors, uh, criminals, um, you know, if, if those those people feel like they're not getting the privacy and the censorship resistance that they need, you know, from Bitcoin, they're ultimately going to move somewhere else. So if if those people start using uh, or continue to use uh, non-custodial coin join services, I think that's a good sign. Um, it means that Bitcoin's providing the censorship resistance that they need. Bullish on coin joins, hey. Um, well, <laughs> last, lastly, um, I was also keen to ask. This is kind of unrelated, but just out of curiosity, this uh, crazy 101. So, for listeners who are unfamiliar, recently, uh, pre the difficulty adjustments, we had a lot of full blocks because basically blocks are coming out slower, meaning that they were a lot more full. And then the the men who stare at the mempool and uh, <laughs> others who are you know doing chain uh, analysis were noticing that there was this entity uh putting out these like really high fee consolidation transactions and so laurent mt was talking on twitter and he he named this entity crazy 101 so do you have any thoughts on that and have you had a chance to look into that yeah we we've uh started looking into this entity uh a little bit um you know zigamon had brought this to our attention um you know as you had kind of laid out uh, we recently had the halving. We saw a significant amount of, uh, you know, hash rate sort of come offline as unprofitable min miners were turned off. Um, and right around the same time, uh, we saw an entity that was, uh, you know, doing these massive consolidation transactions and paying very, very high fees. Um, they were uh, taking uh, one of one multi-sig inputs and consolidating them, uh, you know, into, you know, transactions typically with three outputs. Uh, and paying, you know, uh, again, a, a very high, very high fees. Um, and, and for, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, your listeners will be a little bit aware of the, the purpose of multi-sig. Um, you know, I, I don't really know of a purpose of a one-of-one -one multi-sig. Um, I can't think of, you know, very many reasons that that would be used, uh, you know, for anything. Um, so, you know, they're, they sort of were creating, uh, you know, expensive transactions um, very expensive transactions. And, you know, over a couple week period, it, it looks like they paid uh, about 100 BTC in minor fees, which is, you know, at today's prices, what, a million dollars, you know, all from a single entity. So, you know, uh, Laurent ran uh, a little bit of a custom algorithm to try to, you know, get a, uh, a handle on a cluster of uh, Crazy 101. And, you know, we've seen some, some links to some exchanges, um, some of the typical, you know, uh, people that, um, are typical entities that, you know, aren't really very good stewards of the block space, um, you know, but we'll have to dig into it a little bit further to try to figure out, you know, who and, and why this was going on. I mean, you know, it, it, it would almost seem like, you know, some type of, uh, you know, custom script that, you know, gone, had gone awry, but, you know, you, 
no, if if something like that had happened, you, you would figure that after they, they realized how much they were paying and, and minor fees, they would have shut this thing down. But, you know, it continued for several weeks. And, and you know, again, 100 BTC in, in mining fees from single entities is pretty crazy. Um, you know, so we're not quite sure to make it out of it yet. Um, it's an interesting case that we'll be taking a look at. But I guess uh, the miners are happy, right? That's uh, more money for the miners. So uh, silver lining there for, for the miners, that is. So I guess... Actually, uh, is there anything else you're kind of watching closely or what, what, what are you sort of looking at in terms of uh, research? Um, you know, I, I keep seeing, uh, you know, the, the Ponzi scams keep coming up from some of the mainstream chain analysis firms. Um, I may have to do another, another report on Plus Token and some of the other, uh, you know, recently uh, rediscovered scams like WoToken. Um, you know, we saw uh, in the Cypher Trace report that was released for Q2 about a week or so ago, uh, they had some mention of, of Woe Token and they provided a transaction graph that, you know, was very, um, uh, I guess, again, another term term for these types of analyses that we see from the mainstream is opaque. Um, it was basically just a transaction graph. It didn't even say which, uh, which coin it was, you know, was it Bitcoin or was it Ethereum? Was it something else? Uh, and they were implying that these coins were still sort of moving. Um, you know, so I keep seeing this sort of clip, clickbait junk go by from the mainstream. So I think probably my next report will be on, you know, plus to a little update on plus token and talk uh, briefly about some of these other Ponzi's. And, uh, you know, then we'll sort of just keep it kind of opportunistic. I mean, we didn't expect to see the, the IRS come by with, uh, you know, something that we, we could kind of, you know, sink our teeth into. But, you know, as this stuff kind of comes up, we'll, uh, we'll be around to take a look at it. That's awesome. I think you guys are doing great work. I really enjoyed uh, reading these two reports that you put out recently and, of course, uh, enjoyed discussing with you. So, Ergo, where can people find you online and where can they get the reports? Uh, yeah, you can check out uh, research.oxt.me, which is where all the reports are available. Again, check out oxt.me, our, you know, our block explorer. Uh, users, Normal users would... Uh, would do well to take a look into some of this stuff um, to learn about, you know, kind of improving their own privacy. And other than that, I guess you can um, give me a shout on Twitter. I'm around. Um, and that's about it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me, Ergo. Thank you, Stefan. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 179. That's it from me. I'll see you guys in the Citadels. <laughs> <laughs>